Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Well, good morning, guys. Good to see you today. Uh, I'm going to sit down today because you guys are all sitting down, and I'm kind of jealous. I don't know why you get to sit down in the middle, but I can't sit down. Is that all right? All right. Cool. Good response. Strong response of the Thanksgiving week. Proud of you guys for making it in today. Uh, Today we're going to talk about something really interesting to me. I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, I think you're going to walk away uh, with something good. Today I'm actually going to fix you. Now, I know you may be immediately thinking, uh, what? I didn't know I was broken. No, that's not what anyone thought, is it? We all thought, oh, what part of me is he going to fix, right? Uh, And I don't know if I'm actually going to fix you, but I'm going to give you some tools uh, to maybe fix yourself uh, to some degree. So be prepared, right? I know, audacious goal. Uh, The way that I'm going to do this, spoiler alert, this is just a teaser for the end of the gathering. I'm going to invite you to ask Santa to give you a new skin bag. So if you thought, man, there's nobody else here. Why did I come today? What's going to happen? At least there's like that little bit to just be like, man, now it's a mystery novel where you're like, this isn't going to be good, but I want to find out what happens. Okay. So we're going to do that through feasting and fasting. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but the thing that I want to fix is this feeling of malaise that you sometimes get, right? You've probably had this before. You've got this kind of like, you know, Groundhog's Day thing going on where you're just like living day to day, going through the motions. Life is just coming at you and you're just taking it as it goes, right? You're just doing the thing, right? I feel like that's a good phrase for this. You know, I'm just doing the thing, right? Life can be so boring sometimes, right? Like when you're sitting in a really bad sermon and the pastor can't even deign to stand up to preach at you. Life can be so boring. Here's the perfect picture of the feeling, okay? I'm sure you've experienced something like this before. You're sitting at a dinner party. Uh, You're sitting around, maybe you're just out to dinner with somebody, and they're talking on about something. Maybe it's taxes. Uh, Maybe it's like the experience they had at the, like, DMV the other day or something like that. You ever have somebody tell you a story about something that was really annoying to them, and you're like, you realize by telling me this, you're bringing me into this story right now. Like, that sort of stupid human homework thing that you had to do, now I am doing it with you. We're both reliving it. And you start looking at the window, and you think, if I jump through that window, I wonder what he would do. Like, I wonder what would happen if just right now, just like burst through that window right now, what would happen? Has anyone ever had this thought before? You guys must not hang around as many boring people as I do, right? I mean, like, this is a real feeling where I'm like, you know what, I could, I could do it. I wonder if I would live. We're only on the second floor. I think I could make that, right? Like, that kind of thought. And it comes from just this, like, general sense of, like, man, life is kind of boring sometimes. Life can be droll. Life can just sort of go on and on. You've got this thing, then you've got the next thing, then you've got the next thing. And life just sort of rolls on that way. And while there are lots of ways that you could fix this problem, there are lots of things that you could do to sort of respond to that, I believe, and I truly believe this, that one of the, one of the ways that you can actually respond to this is through feasting and fasting. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, those two spiritual practices of feasting and of fasting. Uh, in our passage today, Jesus lets us know that there is a time for both, but if you do them at the wrong time, you're actually missing out on some of the life that Jesus has given to you. 
I wonder, before we even start, if it wouldn't be prudent and wise for us to take stock of the way that we relate to feasting and fasting. When I come up, when I say those two words, what do you think of? What pops into your mind? Ask yourself, which one of these do you do more often? Fasting, first, is defined by a period of self-denial with the intentional focus on connecting with God. Now, we're not going to talk about intermittent fasting. Yes, we think it's cool that you get to eat whatever you want for two hours a day because you don't eat the other 22, whatever that is. Like, I don't even care about that. We're talking intentionally about spiritual fasting today. And that is simply a period of self-denial with intentional focus on connecting on God. It's giving up comfort to be comforted by God. It's lacking from the world that you might lean into God, or someone say, some, might, some might say fasting from things that you might feast on God. I'm going to make a huge assumption about you, if that's okay. Uh, I'm sorry if it's not you, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to assume that you probably, in your relationship with fasting, fall into one of two categories. Either, A, you have no real relationship with biblical fasting at all, There's not a regular practice that you observe of biblical fasting. Or B, you know about fasting a little. Maybe you've done it before, but you feel like you should do it more or you feel like you are bad at it. I know I typically fall into the second category. But the first, fasting is clearly present in Scripture and has been practiced by Christians of every generation of the church. To not do it all is to miss out just a little bit, at least on this part of the Christian life. Even Jesus went through periods of fasting. And so for us to be like walking through our Christian life trying to follow Jesus and not observing fasting at all, I think would be a swing and a miss. And it really should cause you to question, like, what exactly am I missing out on? To the second, there's this sense of knowing that you should fast, but finding it difficult to motivate yourself to do it. That's where I typically tend to fall, right? It's difficult to build up that desire, the willpower that is required to actually fast. And I know that as a result of that, I'm missing out on something good that God has given me, a way in which I might connect with him. The same is somewhat ironically true of feasting. And if I ever write a uh, book about spiritual habits and postures, I'm probably going to write it about feasting as a spiritual practice because we've all but forgotten how to do this. So fasting is simply the practice of indulging ourselves in the good things that God has given to us so that we might celebrate him more. So to put them like sort of back to back, fasting is denying ourselves to depend on God, but feasting is indulging ourselves to delight in God. Here's a brief history. I'm going to run over 10,000 years really, really fast. There was once this group of nomadic people. They had been saved from slavery. God had sent them out into the wild to prepare his promised land. Uh, He'd given them a guiding principle for life. This is what you should do. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And then he sent them uh, a 10-point law code that would later become the foundation for most westernized law in all of the world. That's the Ten Commandments. And then he broke down that law code in a bunch, a bunch of pages. We call them books like Leviticus, and uh, much of Exodus is based off of this, uh, that would break down this law very systematically to tell you everything, all the way down to, like, what happens if you have a bull, but he breaks out of his pen and he gores your neighbor's daughter. How much money do you owe that neighbor? Like, that level of detail is where this law is going. So he does that for pages and pages and pages. Do you know what comes immediately after that and also takes up a billion pages in your Bible? Rules on how they might feast. That as a part of this elaborate teaching, God gave them an elaborate description of yearly rituals that they were to celebrate called feasts. 
And I want you to pause and think about this for a moment. So God had pulled these people out of slavery. He'd said, you're going to be my promised people. I'm going to put you in my promised land. You are going to be blessed so that you might be a blessing to the rest of the world. You are going to be a nation of priests. You are going to stand between me and the people that need me so that you might tell them about me. You're supposed to be my chosen people so that I might fulfill my plan throughout all of the world. So here's the laws and rules that you need to live by to do this. And also, the other thing that you need to do is every once in a while you need to throw a big party. A few times a year, I'm going to ask you, you need to feast. Now, many of the feasts had components of them that were like some form of self-denial, but they mostly comprised of like feasts we do today, where you get together with people that you like a lot, people that you love, hopefully, and you eat some good food. You eat specific things, you remember specific things, you do specific things. Uh, they had all kind of feasts, feasts back in the day. They had the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, they had the Feast of Passover. All of these different feasts that they would do, and they would eat very specific things and do very specific things so that they might remember very specific things. The Jewish people were very good at following the system of feasts, and uh, the people that were following Jesus were pretty good at following these feasts. In fact, most of the uh, like gospel accounts are tied to these feasts. And if you ever come up and you find one of those like chronological calendars of like what happened in Jesus' life where they break it out point by point and say, he did this, then he did this, he did this. We only know that because the gospel writers were kind enough to say, oh, and he did this while he was on the way to the Passover. Oh, while he and his disciples were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, they were doing this, right? That is how we break it down. And we know that Jesus then was following these feasts. After Jesus died and rose from the grave, the church developed its own system of feasts called the liturgical calendar. Now, if you grew up like me, that might be kind of a scary word, right? Liturgical. Ew. Right? Uh, I come from a long background of uh, Baptists, actually. And uh, if you walk into, like, up and down the East Coast, this is a prime example. Up and down the East Coast, if you walk into churches, you'll walk into, like, a Catholic church or a Methodist church, and you'll be like, man, what is going on? They look like kind of nice like this, I guess, in some ways. But uh, they've got all ornate court carvings and stuff like that. They've got stained glass. And then you walk into an old, old Baptist church, and it is white, just plain white. Everything is white. Everything is simple. And there's sort of this push where we say, like, uh, I don't really want to get into all that fancy nonsense, right? We're like, give me God's word. That's all I need. I don't need all this fanciness. And because of that, and not just Baptists, but other uh, sort of evangelical churches, you could call them, have gone into this strain where we have in many ways rejected the liturgical calendar. The church has been celebrating it now for thousands of years, and there's a temptation among churches like ours to just sort of like throw out the baby in, with the bathwater. Many high churches around the world still observe the liturgical calendar today, and if I may say, they do it better than we do, but I'm still not sure that they're even really hitting the heart of it, right? I mean, there's one, uh, if you look at, like, the Book of Common Prayer, which is sort of a guideline of how to celebrate these things, there's one of those things that says something like, okay, so this week the, uh, you know, priest or the pastor is going to change from the blue robe to the purple robe because it's feast season, baby. And you're like, I don't know if that counts, right? Do you really, like, somebody walk in and be like, oh, snap, I didn't know it was a purple sash kind of Sunday. This is a good day. All right, we're about to get down. No, that's not how it works, right? I don't think that's exactly what Jesus was trying to, like, get us to see here with this season of feasting and fasting. But <clears throat> I think he's trying to tell us something. So 
Let's take a look at what Jesus did when he dealt with the direct question about fasting and feasting in verse 14. Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, not John the author of the book of John, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not, do not fast? Now, to recognize that this was the followers of John should tell you something important. These were people who were trying Okay? These were people who were trying to follow God. The Pharisees were the same, right? They get a terrible rap in Scripture, and they were probably missing it pretty huge. But they were at least people who were giving it a shot, right? These people that were bringing this against Jesus were saying, Hey, we're trying to seek God by fasting, but you and your disciples are not doing any fasting. They had good intentions. They were seeking God. And yet, God was standing right in front of them. So how did God respond? He says something really cool and something really sad. He says this in verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus, calling himself the bridegroom, is basically saying here, if you are fasting while I am still here, you're missing it. You're not getting it. Bridegroom was a very common metaphor for the coming Messiah in Judaism. So Jesus is letting them know, this groom that you have been waiting for is here right now. And he also lets them know, this is the sad part, that one day he won't be here, and at that point they may fast. Again, if I may rep our use of the liturgical calendar here at Dwell, uh, we really observe three things on the liturgical calendar. And I think they're all sort of like captured in what Jesus is saying here. The first is Lent. Lent is the period of fasting and mourning that celebrates or recognizes the suffering and death of Jesus. That for 40 days a year, we remember the price that he had to pay that we might live. Lent is a time of remembering the things that we have done wrong, our sin, and the price that Jesus had to pay for them. Lent is meant to be a dark and painful and challenging time so that we look forward to Easter. Easter, then, is when we celebrate the moment when he defeated sin, death, and hell and rose from the grave. We celebrate his gift of eternal life for us. It should truly be the best day of every year. We kind of get it backwards, I think, in America. Like, we're really good at celebrating Christmas, and then Easter's kind of like, well, we'll buy some candy or a couple of eggs. I don't really know. I think we're missing out on something, though, there. C.S. Lewis actually calls it a champagne-for-breakfast kind of day. It's a victorious day. It is a rapturous day in the truest sense of the word. It is a day where we celebrate freedom from slavery to death and sin. And then the last thing that we celebrate every year is Advent, which means arrival. It is where we celebrate that God came to us at all. It is a day where we celebrate that the plan was finally set in motion. And in celebration of all three, we celebrate the gospel every single year. Think about this. You are observing the gospel. If you're a part of Dwell Church through an entire calendar year, you are observing the gospel over long periods of time every single year. The gospel simply being that Jesus came to us, Advent, that he died for our sins, Lent, and that he rose from the grave, Easter. So Advent is where we celebrate the coming of the bridegroom, the arrival. The wedding party has begun, and Jesus doesn't throw a bad wedding. He doesn't cheap out on the food. Everyone is there. The service is meaningful, but not too long. Everyone is having a good time. And who is the bride then? You, the church, the people of God. I think in a modern American weddings, we have it like a little bit backwards, right? Everything's all about the bride. I know. 
you guys are going to hate me at the end of this. I'm sorry. I'm going to tear down your conceptions right here. But man, the bride coming down the aisle is like the biggest moment. Uh, one of the hardest things about doing a wedding is that I know it is not my bride coming down the aisle. I am fully aware of that, and still the tears. I'm just like, ah. and then I get to stand next to the guy, and then if he starts crying, I start crying. I mean, it's just bad news all the way around, and it's a weird thing, right? So the bride dresses up in this ridiculously fancy outfit, nothing like she would wear normally, right? She gets all wrapped up, and then she gets like presented, sort of like a uh, sheep at a like livestock auction, auction, you know? She gets marched down the aisle like the dad has to hold on to her just in case so she doesn't run. That's kind of a weird thing, right? And then she's like, the dad is like, here, here's my gift to you. I didn't realize it until this moment. I'm actually pretty feminist. I think I'm like, I'm an ally right now for women everywhere. This is messed up, right? So they get marched down. They're all wrapped up in this fine clothing and everything like that and then presented to the groom as if like, here's your present or here's your responsibility now. I don't know. I don't like it. Back in Jesus's time, I think they did it better. Back in Jesus' time, the bride waited for the groom to show up. In fact, some of Jesus' parables actually talk about this a little bit. That they would wait for the groom and his boys to show up before they would throw this huge party, right? So the bride, or the groom and his boys would be sort of like marching through the town. They had like a little processional. I don't know if it was like a pub crawl or what was going on, but they were like marching through. Uh, there's even a story where like younger women would be standing outside with these lamps to sort of like guide the groom and his party in. And then they would party for like days straight. I mean, like just truly just an absurd amount of partying. Sometimes they could last up to 14 days for a wedding, which again, I am 100% in affirmation of. I think weddings are just far too short the way that we do them. But here's what's really cool about this, and here's where I think we get it completely backwards. That there is this moment where everyone is standing around waiting for the groom to show up. There's this moment where everyone is sitting around saying like, okay, uh, the groom is about to show up, he is about to arrive, and then we can start this feast. So they're all waiting for him there. And Jesus is saying before he came, that's how kind of everyone was. Everyone was standing around waiting. When is this groom going to come? When is this Messiah going to come? And in fact, appropriately enough, here we are the week before Advent. That's kind of the feeling that we need to be feeling. I know, I'm skipping over Thanksgiving entirely. I'm sorry. I know I'm talking about feasting and Thanksgiving, but it's not a part of the liturgical calendar. I don't care about it, okay? We're standing on the edge of Advent now, looking for the groom to actually show back up. And then Jesus takes this metaphor a little bit further and says, what would happen if this groom showed up and they were like, great, he's here. And then they were like, all right, time for cake. And they were like, no, nah, I don't want any cake. And they were like, here's a bacon-wrapped shrimp. I don't know if they ate that. Probably not. Uh, here's a bacon-wrapped shrimp. Have this. It'd be good. Here's one of those weird mint things. You remember the, like, pastel mints? I don't even know. Where did those go? Because they only existed at weddings, and now they're gone. I don't. Were they shortbread? Were they mints? No one really knows, right? So they were like, here, have some of those. And they were like, no, no. No, just bread crusts and water for me, thanks. I'm actually fasting right now. Do you know how offensive it is, no matter how much? I'm going to let you know if you're an intermittent faster to not eat at a wedding, not make that your cheap day, or cheat day, man, offensive, okay? And that's what these people were doing. Jesus is saying, hey, the bridegroom is here, but you guys are not eating. You should be partying, but instead you are fasting. You are withholding from yourself. You are denying yourself. Jesus says, feast, because a time for mourning will come later. 
which again brings us back to the liturgical calendar. And celebrating these holy days and seasons, we get to walk through these emotions. That's why we go so hard at Advent during at Dwell Church. That's why we throw our brunch. Uh, we're going to do some decorations. We're going to kind of go nuts. We do all of these different things. We're doing something really cool this year where we're having a Christmas Eve gathering and we're having a New Year's Eve gathering to sort of like worship in the new year. Oh no, Ray said I couldn't say that because it was cheesy. Anyway, I have said it. Worship in the new year. There it is right there. And now it's official. Sorry about that. And then we have Lent to celebrate the death of Jesus and Easter to celebrate the resurrection. Lent is this period of fasting and mourning that Jesus is talking about here. Easter is the time of celebration. Advent, then, is the coming of the bridegroom, that the king has arrived, that God is with us, Emmanuel. Hallelujah, pass the bacon wrap trim. This is an important and crucial antidote to that day-in, day-out, Groundhog's Day way of living. This is a way that God has built into our yearly calendar so that we might remember him and be broken out of our boredom, shook out of our ennui, taken out of our day-in and day-out kind of lives. Okay, up until this point, this is a good sermon, right? And it's interesting, and I think, you know, uh, the feasting stuff is really compelling. Are you guys ready to get a little weird, though? All right, all right, here we go. Uh, Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. So first, let's talk about what this literally means. I think you guys understand the cloth thing. Now, I know none of us are sewing patches on our clothes anymore. We got all the fast fashion and stuff like that. But basically, the idea is if you've got this pair of jeans or something that is already kind of wearing out, and, you know, it isn't one of the every other years that torn holes in jeans are popular. Are we in a torn year, torn hole? Okay, so we're in a ripped up, shredded jeans kind of phase of fashion. I'm an old curmudgeon now to where I'm like, these kids today, they don't know if they want nice jeans or torn up jeans. So assuming that we go back to a nice jeans time, then you're going to have to tear, put a patch in that. And you're going to find out that you can't, right? Because you'll put it like a millimeter off of the tear, and then it's just going to tear right out. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. Not all the social commentary about gene fashion, but you get the rest of it, right? It's just going to make a bigger hole. Now, the second, and I told you this is going to get weird. Uh, And I just talked about feasting, but you're probably going to want to fast for lunch after this because I need to talk about these skin bags, okay? What in the world is Jesus talking about with the wine, putting it in a new skin and an old skin? Well, D.A. Carson explains. Skin bottles... (laughs) For carrying various fluids were made by killing the chosen animal, cutting off its head and feet, and skinning the carcass, and sewing up the skin fur side out to seal all orifices, but one, usually the neck. This is why I had to sit down. I was worried I was going to get a little woozy up here today, (laughs) a little weak in the knees. The skin was tanned, of course, uh, with special care to minimize the disagreeable taste, you know, In time, the skin became hard and brittle. So if new wines, still fermenting, were put into such an old skin, the buildup of fermenting gases would split the brittle container and ruin both bottle and wine. New wine was placed only in new wine skins, still pliable and elastic enough to accommodate the pressure. Do you like that? 
Were you expecting it? expecting to get that kind of like almost throwing up kind of sensation in the back of your throat when you came to church today? Probably not. But now you finally understand what Jesus is talking about. So imagine you're hanging out in the ancient Near East. You kill an animal so that you could store some wine that you have. You skin it. You tan it to minimize. Did you notice minimize the disagreeable taste? <laughs> not get away from it. So your wine is tinged with rabbit a little bit, right? Uh, then you turn it, flip that bad boy inside out. Fill it up with some grape juice. Hope for the best, right? Uh, that way the expanding fermenting gases wouldn't explode the skin. Ugh, man, I just sounded like Jack Nicholson in The Shining just then for some reason, right? Uh, anyway, to state it bluntly, Jesus is saying that the new and the old are not going to mix. More specifically, he's saying that you wouldn't put something that is old onto something or into something that is new. You're not going to put this old or new patch on these old jeans because it's going to tear right off. You're not going to put this new wine in this old wineskin because you're going to blow up the skin and lose the wine and the skin at the same time. And Jesus here is saying that the old cannot hold the new. And the old, the forms, the containers, the things that you would put it in is the old way of doing things and the new is the new work of Jesus. To state it bluntly and simply, Old Testament Judaism cannot contain Jesus. It is not enough. Now notice here there are similarities between the old and new. There's continuity there. Jesus is not saying that we just destroy everything and start over, but he is bursting the old forms. He's saying that you shouldn't put new wine into a, or you, he's saying that you should put new wine into a glass bottle or a Boda box, right? He's saying, like, put it into something brand new. Don't put it in that old skin bag. But in fact, he's using the phrase skin bag to say there is connectivity there, right? There is sort of a consistency. There is a thread that you can follow. Many commentators here call this uh, the beginning of the church. He's saying, like, I am Jesus, I am a representative, I am the same God that you have been worshiping, but we need a new container. The old container is not going to hold us anymore. We need a new one for this new wine that I am bringing in, for this new patch that I am sowing onto your lives. And the reason why this is attached to this incident of feasting and fasting, this question, and it's attached in each of the Gospels, which is kind of a, an interesting and rare thing because it seems like the two things are disconnected, but obviously Jesus actually said those two things in sequence. Because Jesus is saying, my disciples feast right now because it is a change. It is a new container. There is something new here. The old solution was to fast. The new solution is to feast. I am bursting the old forms, and there's going to be a new container to hold me. So what does this say to us today? Obviously, you've learned an important lesson about tanning and holding wine. Obviously, you've learned a little bit about the way that we should change up weddings, but what does it say very practically to us today? Well, for Christmas this year, I'm inviting you to join me in asking Santa for a new skin bag. That's right. There it is, on the screen. Write it down in your notes. This is one of those good things in the notes you write down two years later. You're like, you know what? I'm going to look through my sermon notes, and you're like, what in the world happened today, right? Ask Santa for a new skin bag. Here's what I'm talking about. Advent is a beautiful feast. It happens every single year. Something that I think about the more and more that I get older is that you change every single year, and Advent does not. We tell the same old stories celebrate the same old way. And there's a real temptation 
to walk into this season not really thinking very much about it, just saying like, okay, Jesus, you know, do the whole Advent thing. Yeah, baby, manger, wise men, I get it. Do what you normally do, that whole thing, right? There's a temptation to just sort of walk in to keep focusing on what your daily life is like, to just keep on going through the motions like, yeah, you've done Advent before you get it, right? Instead, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. And this is crazy because part of this is going to be talking about Christmas parties and eating brunch. Part of it's going to be singing Christmas carols and warm fuzzies and watching the snowfall and all of that stuff. But I'm going to invite you as we are doing that to actually make room for Jesus this year. In your heart, in your soul, slow it down and ask him to do something new. Tear down those tired old forms. Get rid of those tired old containers that cannot contain Jesus anyway. And open yourself up. This year, be a part of a weary world rejoicing. Be the shepherd, nearly blinded and completely afraid by the good news. Be a wise man traveling far to seek this newborn king. Be a curious cow, present for the most important moment of all of history. Whatever it is for you, be that. Find him anew in a candle in the window, in an Advent devotional, in the joy of feasting with friends. Open your heart, and your mind to Jesus, joining in with believers throughout the generation saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.